0: This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor of Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. Uh, my prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, if we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info alright you All right. Y'all excited? Y'all amped up? Y'all ready to engage God's word together? Let's go. All right, we're going to be in Acts 25 this morning, and as we walk away, I hope we will know and be able to preach to others that truth in the hands of a righteous God and righteous judge is good. Truth in the hands of an unrighteous judge is just ammo, or it is invoking anger and can be used against you. Truth is good, Truth is known to be Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But oftentimes, truth is used and manipulated to be something that is aimed at and targeted towards people for their own hate and destruction. Have you seen this? Have you seen this in your life? Have you seen this in culture? Truth is often twisted. Truth can be twisted so that it seems good, almost feels right, But yet, in reality, all it is, is twisted truth. You see, truth at its core comes from God the Father, has been given to us through Jesus Christ the Son, and is shown to us daily through His Word by the Holy Spirit. When we don't access this kind of truth, we get, it gets distorted in our minds, distorted in our culture, and then when it's spoken to us and or to our culture, it sounds foreign. Now, in a culture that doesn't accept the truth that comes from God through His Son and through the revealing of the Holy Spirit, when this kind of truth hits us in our face or hits culture in its face, it doesn't feel right. It sounds wrong. It sounds wicked. It sounds twisted and distorted. But in reality, it is what we were always created for. God created us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of this world. That is truth. And in that creation, God gave us truth. He gave us order. He gave us creation in its perfection. He gave us what is right. He has ordained what is good and right. But today, it is hard to decipher what is truth and what is lie. It's hard to figure out what is good and what is bad. It's hard to figure out who's evil and who's good. It's hard to distinguish between what we should apply to our lives and what we should kick out of our lives. For Paul, he held on to truth. He held on to truth in the face of adversity, in the face of rejection, in the face of the potential of losing his life, or his freedom, he held on to truth. It's something he believed in and was willing to die for. Today, not only is truth impacting you, challenging you, uh, transforming you, but is it something that you are willing to stand in front of culture, in front of culture, in front of enemies, in front of those who are against you? Is it something you're willing to stand up in front of others and say, this is truth. This is truth. Because... Paul is going to give us a picture of what it looks like to stand in front of culture and speak truth. Now, I think it's going to be transformative for us to hear and apply to our own lives. I think it's going to change, hopefully, how we view preaching truth, how we view sharing truth in our culture. I want to just walk through chapter 25 and 26 with you, and we're going to see Paul in front of Festus and Agrippa. Okay? And I want you to specifically note down how Paul interacts with these two leaders, Festus, a governor, and Agrippa, a king. I want you to see how he interacts with them, and hopefully we'll be able to walk away knowing what does it look like to stand up for truth when it's in front of an unrighteous judge. You see, truth in front of a righteous judge is a good thing, but truth in front of an unrighteous judge often leads to twisting, or to hate, or to rejection. to many other things. Truth in front of an unrighteous God is not good. It can be ammo. It can be used against you. It can be used for your own rejection. But I want to show you what happens when Paul stands up for truth in the midst of his culture and what he stands up against. I want you to see and note down what Paul is doing in chapter 25. All right, let's look at it. Verse 1. Three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul, that Festus summoned him in uh, to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore, he said, Let those of you who have authority go down with me and accuse him if he has done anything wrong. Now, pause there for a second. Just think about this. Here's the situation. There's a judge. He's Festus. He's replaced Felix from last week. There's the one who's being judged, Paul. And now there's this outside group. This group of Jews have come from Jerusalem to kill Paul. They want Paul to go to Jerusalem. We've seen this for a few weeks now. They want him just to travel down, and they've set up an ambush that's going to kill him. Okay, so they're trying to get him to go back to Jerusalem. So what do they want the judge to do? A favor. Truth in the hands of a righteous judge is good. Truth. Truth. Paul is innocent. But truth in front of a judge that has a favor can be used as ammo. Paul's in front of a judge that could be swayed here. Watch with me. Verse 6. When he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, seated at the tribunal, he commanded Paul to be brought in. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that were not... Uh, that, but they were not able to prove. Uh, then Paul made his defense neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. That is Paul's truth. He has not sinned against three things uh, this Jewish law, the temple, or against Caesar. He's not going against them in any way. Verse 9. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor. There you go. Look at how quick that happened. Right? Paul's in front of Festus. So it looks like everything's going to be okay. He's in Caesarea. As long as Paul stays in Caesarea, he's not in Rome. He's not in Jerusalem. He's kind of on this journey. He's sort of okay in this situation. As long as Paul's there, he's not going to die. Now, he's not concerned with his own death. We're going to see that in a little bit. But Festus shifts, right? He's, at one moment, he's like, okay, let's just uh, judge him here. Now he shifts, and he says, it, it says he wants to do the Jews a favor. So he replied to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me there on these charges? Paul replied, I am standing at Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as even you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I am not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Caesar. Then after Festus conferred with his counsel, he replied, You have appealed to Caesar to Caesar you would go. As a Roman citizen, Paul had the opportunity to appeal to Caesar. It would mean that Paul would be in front of Caesar. It wouldn't be his final judgment, but it would be a judgment that they could not take away from him. If he appealed to Caesar, that means he went. Now, that's also a dangerous place to be because in front of Caesar, there's a little bit more power, a little quicker action. He can enforce some things uh, that maybe Agrippa wasn't able to do. So the fact that he appealed to Caesar is a big deal here. If One, it protected him from going back to Jerusalem to be killed. But two, it's going to exonerate him because he has nothing to be guilty of. If he had something that he was guilty of and he was going before Caesar, um, he, w- he would never appeal to Caesar. Like he would never uh, take that, that step to go to Caesar because that's a, that's, a, that's a difficult thing to do. You had to pay for it. You had to pay for your lodging, for your travel, for your food. You had to pay for everything. Paul would have to cover all of his expenses to get up to Caesar. So many people, not many people would do this. But Paul, in this moment, appeals to Caesar because now they can't send him back to Jerusalem. Uh, it's an interesting point and thing that Paul does here, but we all know what Paul is on a journey towards Rome. God has called him to go to Rome to preach the gospel. That's where he's going. This is part of the journey. That's what he's going to do, right? So Paul just keeps moving on. And it's almost this opportunity. Like, i appeal to Caesar. He's instantly going to Rome. And he's going to go preach the gospel in Rome. Like, I love it. Paul's just committed to this journey. Now, in your life, have you ever faced somebody that you're like, God... This, this is a situation that is so far outside of my control. This, 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 the culture is so far gone, I, I can't even stand in front of it. Like I, I don't even feel like I can preach into it. It's so different than me. It's so, uh, um, I feel like it's so uh, gone away from you that I don't even want to be a part of it. Many people have said before, like, I don't even want to step foot in the culture because it's so evil and wicked and all these different things. I want to show you what Paul does, right? Look at, look at how Paul handles these situations. Verse 13. "'Several days later, King Agrippa and Bernice "'arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call on Festus. "'Since they were staying there several days, "'Festus presented Paul's case to the king, saying, "'There's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. "'When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests "'and the elders of the Jews presented their case "'and asked that he be condemned. "'I answered them that it is not up to the Roman custom "'to give someone up before the accused faces the accuser "'and has an opportunity for a defense against the charges.' So when they had assembled here, I did not delay. The next day I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. The accuser stood up but brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Instead, they had some disagreements with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus. Jesus. Now, just for a moment, think with me on who King Agrippa is. King Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was the, the leader of uh, this area of Jerusalem, Judea, when Jesus was born. Now, if you'll remember back with me to when Jesus was born, they killed all males under two years old, so that the Messiah, who they were promising was here, would be killed and there would be nobody raised up to free the Jews. So Herod was killing and squashing all of these different uh, 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 messiahs that were coming, right? Now his son and grandson were also participating in killing messiahs and people who would step up and preach the gospel or preach good news about Uh, God the Father, and forgiveness, and grace, and repentance, and all these different things. So you have four generations, at least three before this Agrippa, this is Agrippa II, at least three before him, who were trying to squash Messiahs. One of them was the one who oversaw the persecution, suffering, and death on the cross of Jesus of Nazareth. So Festus says to Agrippa, That Paul was talking about a man named Jesus. A dead man, Paul claimed to be alive. Verse 20 Since I was at a loss in a dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held for trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, he replied. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice. Now let's stop again. Okay, so Agrippa II, right? He's the grandson, great-grandson of the original Herod the Great, whose son was Herod, whose the son was in Agrippa, and now we have Agrippa II. Uh, Agrippa II's sister, is name's Bernice. That's who is in this text. We see Agrippa and Bernice come. It's a sister. He's the king, She's the queen. Which means in what most of the culture of that day believed that they had married. And so now you have a brother and sister married. You have King Agrippa's uh, family bloodline all the way up to Herod who's trying to kill Jesus. All of them who killed their children and their wives. They continually killed children and their wives. Now not all of them because Herod had 12 kids. um, Tons of children Um, through other wives, 12 wives, he had 12 wives and tons of kids through them. And he killed many of these wives and many of these children. You get down to this Agrippa. He's married to his sister. His sister originally married her uncle. When he died, she married his brother. So she has been married to two uncles and her brother. Agrippa... Was just like his parents and grandparents, killing people who disagreed with him, killing children, killing uh, people around him, friends, and everything around him. Now, here's why I say all that. You may be like, what in the world is this dude talking about? I'm with you. It's crazy. Have you ever felt like we live in a tough culture? Come on, y'all. That's the king. And let me remind you of something he's Jewish. And he's leading for the Romans, and he's over Paul. And Paul's about to stand in front of him. I hear so many times man, our culture's too far gone. Y'all, come on. <laughs> Paul's preaching into a very difficult culture. If Paul can stand before Agrippa and preach the gospel, you can stand before our culture and preach the gospel. Jesus, remember that word. Verse twenty-three. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the military commanders and prominent men of the city. When Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in. And then Festus said, "King Agrippa, and all men present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has appealed to me concerning him, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should live, uh, that he should not live any longer." I found that he had not done anything deserving of death, but when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him, Now, uh, note that down. I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write, for it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. And y'all, that is culture. That is what happens when you preach truth. Don't expect to preach truth in a difficult culture, in a culture that will reject truth and doesn't like truth. Truth has become personal and is not found in God alone it's not originated in creation or in God the Father when you preach truth into that culture don't be surprised when they have nothing against you and still send you to caesar don't be surprised when they have you in chains when you've done nothing wrong that's the culture we face but it's nothing different than the culture Paul faced Paul's in chains Paul's in prison. Paul's without food. Paul's without all these different things. Why? They have nothing against him. You see, truth in the hands of a righteous God is a good thing. Truth in the hands of an unrighteous judge can be used as ammo against you. So Festus is trying to figure out something that he can send to Caesar because you don't really want to be a governor or a king that sends Caesar people and is like, we don't really know what he did, but here you go, right? Like, you can imagine Caesar being like, dude, I'm way too busy to be dealing with all these different things, but here is Festus in this situation having to send him something. So Agrippa said to Paul, this is verse one of chapter 26, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially since you are very knowledgeable about all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, I want to ask you a question. When you go into culture and you discuss things with culture, is that how you start your discussion? I think we learn a lot by watching how Paul interacted with his culture. Because if you just read through there, you might just read over all this and be like, well, Agrippa, I mean, surely he was, sounds like he's a pretty good dude. He knows about all the Jewish culture and everything going on. Y'all, He was in a long line of struggling leaders who made really poor decisions. Not only that, but like to the Jews, Agrippa is like the evil one. I'll give you an example of this. In 70 AD, there was a revolt in Jerusalem throughout Judea against Rome. They tried to overthrow Rome's authority over them. They did this multiple times, but they did this in 70 AD. In 69, 70 AD, the one who came to them to tell them not to do it was Agrippa II, this guy. He went to the Jews and he said, hey, look, y'all, calm down. Just let Rome rule over you. As long as you don't do anything crazy, they won't do anything crazy. Let's not start a war. They're too powerful. So he's trying to get his Jewish people to stop this overthrow. Their response to him you're part of them. They don't listen to him. So what do they do? They start fighting back, and ultimately, Agrippa II leads an army against them. Y'all, Agrippa II was a Jew and a Roman, but the Jews rejected him because he was part of the Romans. Paul is a Jew and a Roman standing before Agrippa, who has the responsibility of either sending him to Caesar with information or not. And here is what, how Paul starts it to this wicked king. I'm thankful that you're the one judging me. Now, he doesn't say I'm thankful like to butter him up like we saw before with other guys. He says I'm thankful because he understands Jewish customs. Now, I want you to keep that in your mind as we walk through this. Verse 4. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time. If they are willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand on trial because of the hope in what God promised to our ancestors, the promise our twelve tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. There it is again. Can you imagine Agrippa in this moment? If you have the opportunity to stand in front of someone who can decide your fate, whether you're in prison or you die... Would you evoke the person that his parents and grandparents have hated and tried to stop and tried to kill? Watch watch how this continues out. Verse 10, I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priest when they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. And in all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. Y'all, this is not going well for Paul. In like, in like cultural terms and like, in like realistic human terms, what we would think is like, man, you're making, like, this is not good, Paul. What you are doing is really bad. You know why? King Agrippa is in front of Paul, to see if he's going to kill Paul or imprison Paul for religious reasons. And Paul starts with, I used to kill people and imprison people for religious reasons. Is that where you would start? I mean, come on y'all. Every scenario that we see right now is just unbelievable for how Paul is handling this. He's not yelling at Agrippa and telling him all the the terrible things he's done. He's not throwing sin in his face and trying to shame him and trying to do all these different things to to pull Agrippa down. He's not doing all these different things. But he's also, you don't see him really like trying to free himself of the chains that are around his wrist, right? Like you don't see him like, wait, Paul, why haven't you thrown in there? Hey, like you could free me and you should free me because I haven't done anything wrong. Like if anything, he should have paused earlier when he was like, hey, thank you. And just like stop there and been like, now will you set me free? I haven't done anything. But he continues on with what? I killed people for religion too. It's unbelievable that Paul continues with that. But I want you to see this. It's really important because Paul reveals authenticity that we need to see. Paul reveals a authenticity and a truthfulness that we need to see. When we stand before the culture, Paul does not begin by bashing what they did, He begins by being honest about what he did. He doesn't start with their sin. He starts with his sin. So often in our culture and so often in churches throughout the world, they begin with, this is where you are wrong. Throughout scripture, we see missionaries and pastors, Paul and Jesus, beginning with, Jesus is the Savior. He's the hope of the world. You were created in Christ Jesus before the foundation of this world to be good and holy and blameless in His sight. That was what you were intended for. Paul doesn't start with how Agrippa is evil. He starts with how he is evil. Verse 12... I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priest, King Agrippa. While on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I asked, why are you, uh, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus. Do you remember if we back up what Agrippa said, or sorry, Festus said to Agrippa? How are we going to send Paul up there to my Lord? In Greek, Lord, uh, Kairos, it's the Caesar. He, he see, you see, they, they would say, and it was even imprinted on their money, Caesar is Lord. For the Romans, Caesar is Lord. No one else is Lord. To claim to be Lord is to go straight against Caesar and to basically say that Caesar is not God, which Caesar was to believe to be a son of God, it's like directly against everything that they believe Caesar is. It's directly against Nero at that point to the point where he could be killed for saying something like that. To say Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, which is exactly what Paul will write back in Romans, is an affront to humans. It's an affront to human authority in the establishment. What it's saying is, Jesus is your Lord, not Caesar. So for Paul to say that Jesus said, I am Jesus, the Lord, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Can you imagine what Agrippa heard in that moment? Not only Messiah, not only Jesus of Nazareth, who the fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers have hated, but now Lord, he's hidden from the Jewish side, and he's hidden from the Roman side. Paul is speaking truth, not afraid to speak truth, but the way he's doing it is wrapped up into his own testimony. It's not about Agrippa in this moment. It's not about Festus in this moment. It's not about those around him in this moment. It's about Paul. Paul was a sinner saved by grace when Jesus showed up to him on the road to Damascus and woke him up. Verse 16, but get up and stand on your feet God raises up Paul for something else. It says, For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. God gave him a plan, a purpose, bigger than what he was doing. Transformed his mission from killing Christians to making Christians. In fact, in verse 17, he shifts from killing Christians to rescuing Christians. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and they may receive forgiveness of sins and to share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Y'all, there's not a lacking of truth in here. Repent from sin. There's not a lacking of grace. There's forgiveness for sins but he wraps it up into his own story. It's not about you, King Agrippa. Let me tell you about me. And the Jesus that transformed me, I want you to know about him too, that you might be transformed too. And remember, this is King Agrippa married to his sister, who was married to her uncles, who have killed and seen fathers and grandfathers kill his mom and grandmas and aunts and uncles and friends and who were were those who were most trusted. In fact, y'all, Agrippa II, this guy, he was raised in Rome. Now, most of his family was raised in Jerusalem and around the Judea area, but uh, Agrippa II was raised up in Rome, uh, friends with and trained under the same leaders who trained Claudius. Claudius was a a future Caesar who would be one of the worst persecutors of Christians. Nero, Domitian, Claudius. They were back-to-back. Claudius was raised with Agrippa II. Agrippa II has literally been raised his entire life to kill Christians. His entire life has been wrapped up in against Christianity. And Paul says, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord. So he ends it with this. Verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, "'Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first "'and to those in Jerusalem "'and in all the region of Judea "'and to the Gentiles "'that they should repent and turn to God "'and do works worthy of repentance. "'For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple "'and were trying to kill me. "'To this very day, I have had help from God, "'and I stand and testify to both small and great, "'saying nothing other than what the prophets "'and Moses said would take place, "'that the Messiah would suffer "'and that as the first to rise from the dead, "'he would proclaim light to our people "'and to the Gentiles.'" Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus of Nazareth is the one who your parents and grandparents tried to kill. Now, is that what you would do? Right? Is that what we would do in front of Agrippa? And you may wonder, well, you know, was it kind of, how would they have received that? Well, I think I've given you some indicators on how they received it, but let me tell you how Festus received it. Verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. And Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. There it is, truth and good judgment. Y'all, truth and good judgment don't matter in in the hands of unrighteous judges. They aren't lo- looking for truth and good judgment. They're looking for more money, more power. They're looking for favors. Don't expect when you speak truth into a culture that is looking for power, money, and favors, when you speak truth into it, they're going to accept it and receive it and love it and enjoy it. Don't expect when you say, man, you got to change your life. Your life is going to be transformed by the grace of God. Don't expect when you say you got to repent and your repentance and the acts and the works that are going to follow that are going to be in alignment with what Jesus Christ has for you. Don't expect the world to be like, yes, awesome. Thanks for telling me. Shouldn't be married to my sister. Like seriously. Y'all, truth in the hands of an unrighteous God is often rejected. Look at how look at how Agrippa responds to it. Verse 26. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice since this was not done in a corner. And here it is, y'all. In front of King Agrippa, Paul doesn't show his chains and say, take me out. Free me. Give me freedom again. Give me a new life. What does he do? He offers freedom and forgiveness to Agrippa and Festus. He says specifically to Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophet's I know you believe. Man, Paul uses the time that he has in front of Agrippa, not for his own salvation, but for the salvation of Agrippa and Festus. How do you use your time in front of culture? Agrippa's response, I mean, it makes sense, y'all. For the Herodian dynasty, for all the evil that was wrapped up into it, for they're trying to kill Messiahs and Jesus of Nazareth and the Lord... Uh, Jesus, It makes sense how he says this. He says, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? And Paul's response, I wish before God that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. The king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up. And when they had left, they talked with each other and said, This man is not doing anything to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. This morning, I want you to walk away with a couple challenges, maybe that might transform you in your own life. First, faithfulness isn't enough for humans. You know, when truth is not accepted anywhere, when kings and governors are rejecting you for your truth, don't expect for your faithfulness to be enough. Uh, for Paul, there was nothing to send him to Rome. There was nothing, no no bad stuff that he had done that he was going to send to Caesar, uh, that Festus was going to send to Caesar and say, look at what he's done. And when we are in front of our culture, no matter how you've lived your life, no matter what you've done, don't expect for the world to just be like, hey, you've been you've been really good and clean throughout your life. Everything's good. Free pass. Go on. It's not how it works. Literally, in front of an unrighteous judge, you could do nothing wrong your entire life. In front of an unrighteous judge, you could do nothing wrong your entire life. But if they are driven by power, money, or favors, you could be standing before them and them sentence you to jail for 20, 30 years or even to capital punishment for Nothing. The greatest example of this is Jesus himself. He lived a perfect life, did nothing wrong, and yet in the, in the hands of an unrighteous judge and unrighteous people, they kill him. Don't expect for the culture to look at you and say, man, man, you've just been really good. The words you said, they've been really kind. You know, everything's good. Just carry on with your day. Man, when you speak truth, people tend to reject you. In a world full of lies and hate don't expect to be accepted and loved. Paul wasn't. Why should we? Faithfulness is not enough for humans, but faithfulness is enough for God. Now, it's in this moment where typically church goers and uh, religious people, especially religious leaders or something, might find solace, kind of find like, man, this is good. Like, we need this. Faithfulness is enough for God. But I just want to remind you of what Paul says at the very beginning of his gospel presentation. He recognizes who he is, right? He points out his own simpleness to the point where he's saying, like, I understand if you do this. Like, I just, I used to do this. Like, such authenticity, transparency before them to say, like, this is who I was. I was a sinner too. Paul stands before Agrippa completely humbled, completely transparent in front of them to what he did. Y'all, faithfulness is enough for God when it's Christ's faithfulness and not your own. Your faithfulness will never be enough to satisfy. It's like if you put you know, if you have a judge who's weighing good and bad, if you're like, man, this was, you did some really good things, you did some really bad things, you know, but I think your good outweighs your bad, so I think you're solid, like, you're okay on this one. You lived a pretty faithful life. It's not like God's gonna be like, you did pretty good with your life. That other stuff, that was pretty bad, but don't worry about it, it's all good. That's not what Jesus did. Instead, Jesus looks at his own son. And Jesus' faithfulness is always enough for God. Jesus' faithfulness went to the cross and raised from the dead so that by faith you might be accepted into his body, which we call the church. And when you are, when God sees Jesus, he sees his faithfulness. And when you're wrapped up into Jesus, God sees you and sees you as faithful too. That's when our faithfulness becomes enough. When God doesn't see our works, when God doesn't see our sin, but He sees the life of Jesus, who faithfully lived the life of perfection, faithfully died the death that took our sin upon His, upon His back on the cross, and on the cross, all sin, all condemnation, all guilt died on the cross. And by the resurrection, there is no more sin. There is no more judgment of condemnation upon us. He took it all upon himself and then overcame it with the resurrection. If he had just died, he died a death of sin and we would too. But when he raised, he raised to a life that we can have too. A new life full of forgiveness and full of freedom. And that's what Paul knew. That's what changed his life and that's what can change your life too. It's what can make us stand in front of a culture and say, I want you to understand truth. Because there's a Jesus. There's a God who loves you. I've been part of a lot of churches. I've seen a lot of Christians. I've seen a lot of rejecting culture. I've seen a lot of spit and hate. I've seen a lot of shame in people. I've seen a lot of shame in culture. I've seen a lot of calling out culture. I've seen a lot of calling out people. I've seen a lot of Christians yell from a distance with a bullhorn. But I haven't seen many people live like Paul in front of Agrippa. Not shouting about his sins, but shouting about his own. When you're pointing more to Jesus than people's sin, maybe you found Jesus. If you're leading people to understand their sin but not leading people to understand Jesus, you've missed it. Jesus didn't come to make people feel like they're sinners without a Savior. He came as the Savior for sinners. There's a difference. My prayer for you is that you will never get so prideful, myself, that we would never be a church that's so prideful that we think we've achieved some sort of faithfulness and righteousness that before God He would see us and go, man, you, wow, you're a pretty good church. You guys are pretty holy over there, Westminster Baptist Church. No. We're a bunch of broken people who know we're broken, who found a Savior who heals broken people. And I hope this church would treat this culture the same way Jesus treated us when we were broken too. I hope that I can look out upon a church in this room and see a bunch of people who've run to Jesus and cling to Him. That every time you fail, you know that 1 John 2, 1 is true. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. How bad would it be for our world to be stuck in sin and not know there's a Savior? And for us to be too afraid to stand before Agrippa to tell them there is a Savior who loves them? There's an advocate who is crying out to the Father every time they sin, Father, forgive them. Not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Do you understand this? Jesus isn't advocating for you in heaven because of the good works that you've done, or because of the faithfulness that you've lived. He is advocating in heaven because of what He has done for you. So when we go to a world and talk to them about the struggle that they have, about the evil they're addicted to, about the sin that has entrapped their hearts, what are we telling them? Are you telling them that there's a God in heaven who died for them, who is advocating for them, who is working in their life, who is transforming their hearts, who will cry out to His own Father, save them by my wounds, by the cross. We don't need another church that thinks they're holy enough. We need, another, we need a church that recognizes that Jesus was good enough. We don't need another church that can yell at the culture and tell them how evil they are without offering a Savior. We need a church that understands how evil evil they were, found a Savior, and will preach that Savior to the culture. Because nothing will save our culture except for Him. Christ alone. So as the band comes, I want to give you a couple gospel responses. And if you believe this truth with Paul, injustice is not the final word. Felix, Festus, and Caesar did not get to decide the final word about Paul's life. Amen? Felix, Festus, and Agrippa thought they had control and power over Paul's life. Christ has the final word. He is a promise-keeping God. He is a faithful God who declares truth over you. You are His sons and daughters. Injustice is not the final word. It's only the setup for the finale because Jesus Christ comes And when injustice is in front of him, it only means the cross that bears the crown. And if you see injustice in front of you, if you see a crown in front, a cross in front of you, remember that that cross always leads to a crown. And it may not be till heaven till you receive that crown, but it's coming. And Paul understood this. He was willing to take the injustice and the cross on this earth because he knew that there was a crown in heaven to which he believed and preached in Philippians 121 when he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and advocates for you. Let's advocate. Let's preach. Let's love. Let's bring truth. Let's bring grace. But let us not ever think that these chains of this world, these difficulties that we face, the Agrippas and the evil in the culture are special to us. Every culture has faced them. We face them today. Our question is, Are we Paul or are we Agrippa? Are we on the outside judging? Are we on the inside preaching? Are we religious like Agrippa? Or do we follow the way, Jesus Christ, like Paul? Do we share our testimonies like Paul or do we condemn like Pharisees? Do we preach Christ like Paul, or do we preach Caesar and politics like Agrippa? Today, I challenge you, church, to be humble before our culture, to show them our scars and wounds, our fears and failures, and call them to the same Jesus that delivered us from those. I want to pray for you. Father, you know my scars, you know my fears, you know my wounds, you know my mistakes, you know my temptations, you know who I am. And Father, I thank you for delivering me. I thank you for saving me. I thank you for your forgiveness. I pray, God, that you would continue to forgive me of the mistakes I make. I thank you, Jesus, for advocating for me to the Father. I pray, God, that you would transform lives in this room. I pray that you would lead people to your Son that your Holy Spirit would work right now in this moment to draw people near to you. That lives would be changed. Forgiveness would be felt for the first time. Condemnation would be overcome. Guilt no more. The Father, your Son, Jesus, would reign in our hearts. Victorious over all things evil. And we thank you and praise you, God, for what you've done. We could never do anything to save ourselves, and neither can our world. So we pray, God, that you would save them and use us. We love in your son's name. Amen. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us, and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.